Welcome to the Carrero Podcast. Before we get started today, we would like to inform our listeners that Carrero is supported by edX Global. It's an international nonprofit where we work with K-12 students as they work with their local and global communities, providing service learning activities. In 2022, we are asking for your support in raising $20,000. It is to assist our students and their activities in creating gardens for schools and communities, purchasing and delivering blankets for the homeless, providing curriculum for teachers across the world, purchasing backpacks and filling them with educational items for students in need, and collecting and delivering food and toiletry items for the local homeless organizations. You can donate with Venmo using at edacts-global, or you can go to our website, which is www.edxglobal.org, spelled edacts G-L-O-B-A-L dot org and donate. We appreciate your support. Thank you. Hello, you are listening to the Carrero Podcast. I'm Malia Hoffman. I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Nicole Lim. Nicole is a speaker, educator, and consultant on leveraging dignity through the restorative art of storytelling. She is the founder and international director of Freely and Hope a nonprofit organization dedicated to equipping survivors and advocates to lead in ending sexual violence through their rewritten stories. If you'd like to check out their initiative and get involved, go to www.freelyinhope.org slash hope circle slash that is F-R-E-E-L-Y-I-N-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G forward slash H-O-P-E dash C-I-R-C-L-E. There you can become a Hope Circle member as a monthly donor towards anti-sexual violence. Hi, Nicole. Thank you for joining us today. Can you please tell us how you became involved in working with people who have been victims of sexual violence? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me on this podcast. It's been a while since we've last connected and it's good to kind of reframe our understanding of mission and justice as it evolves over time. Um, How I first got started with Freely and Hope is uh, in my formal work as an international documentary filmmaker. I was working for international agencies all around the globe, capturing stories of people who experienced um, unspeakable trauma. And in the process of that was meeting many survivors in the community who had higher hopes and dreams to build a better world. And I was convicted by their stories and I was also challenged by their vision, trying to understand what what, what it would look like to return to the same trauma that you've experienced in hopes of liberating others from ever experiencing that trauma. 
And so I was so compelled by those visions that I changed my career and I started Freelane Hope with one survivor in Kenya, one survivor in Zambia. And so for the past 12 years, we've been working to evolve our programs to the serve the needs and the vision of survivors as they see it. So moving from providing holistic educational opportunities to developing leadership within them, to providing platforms for them to share their stories and um, work to prevent sexual violence in their communities. I didn't know you were a filmmaker. Yeah, so that was actually part of my introduction to Biola for the first time, I think before I did the conference with you. Um, my film was premiered at Biola, well not premiered, but it had a showing at Biola. And then from that film, I would have a discussion around um, ethical storytelling, uh, nonprofit development, and women's rights. So um, I think that's how I first did my first gig at Biola. And that's, yeah, around the time um, that I was doing more work there. And then um, talking about the um, holistic education opportunities, what, what type of work do you do, you do with, with, with the people that you work with? Yeah, so with survivors of sexual violence in our communities, um, we work in Kenya and Zambia, and primary education is usually considered free, but secondary education is not. And so the gap from no tuition fees, only having to pay for uniform, uh, exam fees typically, shoes, socks, that jumps to that in addition to school fees, which is completely unattainable for families living in extreme poverty with five, six, seven children. And so oftentimes the boys will be sent to school if there's money and the girls will either stay home, uh, work as house help, um, be married off early or be forced into prostitution. And so those are all the gaps uh, and barriers to girls achieving education oftentimes in the countries that we serve. And so the survivors were telling me, we want to go to school. We want to go to high school. We want, we want to go to university. We want to utilize our educational experience to create better pathways for other girls as well. And so as they would go to school, I would find that tuition fees was simply not enough because there were barriers to them accessing school, such as transportation, such as pads, such as uh, food for their younger siblings so that they could go to school and there's food at home for the siblings, uh, such as job opportunity, um, such as therapy, right? And so there are so many resources that they needed to go to school well and to actually thrive in their academic communities. And so when we say holistic education, that means the holistic support that they need for them to thrive academically, which includes tuition fees, health care, safe housing, legal aid, um, counseling, and also uh, mentorship, and uh, the community of belonging that we provide in our organization that provides support, encouragement, um, a listening ear, um, and the and perspective of other survivors mm -hmm. um, that can support their journey toward leadership. And then, then how how do you come up with the with the funds? Is it is it uh, mainly based out of uh, what you're doing here in the in the U.S. or over in Zambia and and Kenya? 
Yeah, so currently we're majority U.S. funded. We are moving toward a model that will be more hybrid. So actually in this next strategic plan, the goal is for our Kenya and Zambia communities to raise 25% of their local budget. Um, so we're starting to move toward that now. We've had some success with smaller micro campaigns. Uh, mobile giving is really big in Kenya and Zambia. So we've done micro campaigns where they've raised um, about $500 per campaign. So they're starting to build capacity locally, which is really exciting. Good. Yeah. I, Nicole, I heard you say um, in your earlier um, question that I asked about working to prevent sexual violence from happening. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So a lot of our work is centered on both aftercare, caring for survivors who've already experienced violence, and also prevention. So what we found in best practices for sexual violence prevention is also centered around education. One, may it be formal education, like I said, for high school students that can't access formal education. When they're in school, sexual violence can be prevented because they're not being forced to work the streets, work as house helps, work in any situations that make them might make them more vulnerable to sexual violence. And so education is part of that key component. The other part is community education. So when the community is aware of what sexual violence is, what it looks like, grooming practices, especially as it relates to children, uh, ways that uh, both men and women can work together to provide mutual consent in relationships, right? Um, all of that helps to lead toward preventing sexual violence. And so we do a lot of community education work as well um, as direct support for survivors. Wow. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. How mm -hmm. when you when you first started, um, because you were you were sharing that when when you were uh, when you were a filmmaker, you were you were starting to hear all, all these stories. And then in my mind's eye, you were talking to to people and then boom, you were you heard stuff from Zambia and then Kenya. How did that happen? And then how how did you um, come to involve yourself with, with them? And then how was this how were your efforts first um Accepted or not accepted? Yeah. So I think as a filmmaker, right, you are um, immersed into cultures and experiences and stories and homes that are not your own. And after doing that for over a decade, actually, um, I felt that simply sharing the story was insufficient, that simply listening to a story and sharing it publicly wasn't actually ethical for me in terms of how I wanted to see what my advocacy work would look like. And so in transitioning, it required me to actually delve deeper into the story to learn what are the solutions that they have for themselves and how can I be a part of initiating that. When I was working for these international agencies, I would basically go into someone's home, package up a beautiful story, give it back to the agency and trust that the agency would support the person. But I really didn't know, right? Because I would be so far removed from the, their trajectory of help that I didn't know if they were actually educated. I didn't know if they were actually finding a sustainable livelihood for their families. I didn't know, right? And so that disconnect um, was really um, concerning for me in terms of how I wanted to see my role and efforts in international development work. And so in listening to the stories of survivors, what I found was that there was a common desire for one, education, two, prevention, and three, storytelling advocacy skills. 
And so in that, that's when I realized, okay, what would it look like if we could design our own programs together that helped you move through those efforts and lead your own process of reform and lead your own process of healing, sustainability um, through your education. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I decided to change careers because I felt like their vision was so much larger than mine. Um, And I wanted to actually be a part of that trajectory of leadership and transformation as opposed to just packaging it up into a two-minute highlight video, right? I wanted to be part of the years, years, years long of of transformation that we see in our communities. And um, after 12 years, I still see so much transformation being birthed. I'm like, what could be next, right? And so um, in learning to work with communities, I think reception initially... um, is it, I mean, of course, barriers. Uh, one, I am not a survivor to the extent that they've experienced sexual violence. Um, and two, I'm not black or African. And so having the cultural divide and also the experiential divide um, causes a great barrier. And so a lot of the leadership practice for me isn't letting survivors lead. And then in letting survivors lead and knowing that my role in positioning is to create equity in power sharing and provide those resources and platforms that they need to uh, initiate their own solutions for transformation and for healing. And that process takes time and trust building. Yeah. And many international organizations, especially working in the countries that I serve, have burned so many bridges because they come in with their egos, their saviorisms, <laughs> their Western colonizing thought, their religiosity that gives them, they, that inflates their sense of what's best um, over uh, the voices and the needs of survivors. And so practices undoing those saviorisms, those Western colonizing practices and initiating something different. All of that takes time, intentionality and trust to build so that the community and you can work together in partnership and in tandem. And can you, can you talk about that? Because um, throughout the years, one of the things that I've, that I've learned is that I, I learn, I unlearn, and then I have to re to relearn. Um, and and oftentimes, at, at least for myself, it's kind of depending on what it is. It, it could be a grueling process. Um, can you can can you share um, what what you've learned along the way? Yeah, I think a lot of my learning experiences have been. Um, in terms of leadership, what does it look like to lead an organization in an international development setting when you are non-survivor, non-Black, non-African? What is the role of the advocate in advocacy? And I think this term that we use a lot, especially in Christian settings, because I think it comes from the book of Isaiah, is uh, being a voice for the voiceless, right? And so what that implies is that you, your voice is stronger, more powerful than the other, and that you are speaking on behalf of someone else. Mm-hmm. And that actually disowns 
the survivor sense of power, right? And so how we could reframe that instead of being a voice for the voiceless is being a voice with those who have been deemed voiceless, right? So it's reframing our language and our understanding and perception of those who are considered voiceless or minorities or oppressed or in poverty, um, vulnerable, right? Seeing folks who have been minoritized or marginalized as people of power and authority over their own decisions and building infrastructure so that those decisions and power sharing resources can be built. Um, I think that's the role of the advocate. Um, so how I like to see it is like, instead of being the voice for or, um, or, or being the primary leader, right? I see it more as survivors standing on top of my shoulders being that sense of fortitude and stability so that they can direct the vision for which the organization should go and for which they could direct the vision for what I believe actually is the world needs to go. I think the world needs to move toward an anti-violence, anti-sexual violence rhetoric. And the only people that can lead us toward that vision is folks with lived experiences. That's beautiful. Um, so centering those solutions, I think, is essential to leadership practice. So I know you said that your work um, primarily exists in Kenya and Zambia, but where is your office and where's your organization located and, and the people that work with you for this um, initiative? So we're technically uh, organizations in three countries, the U.S., Kenya, and Zambia. So Kenya and Zambia operate autonomously with all local leadership. All of our program staff are also survivors of sexual violence. Many are, are alumni from the programs as well, and many of our operations staff are also survivors of sexual violence. I am the only full-time U.S.-based um, leader, and we actually have a the way that we make decisions for programs on the field is based on a leadership panel. So we have two from Kenya, two from Zambia, and myself to collectively make decisions as it relates to program. So in that way, again, that power sharing is... Um, is, is equitable. And that's what we try to build in our organization. If someone wanted to get involved and help support or give their time or um, whatever they can, what would, how would, where would they start? What would you tell them to do? Yeah. So best way is to join our Hope Circle membership, which is our monthly donors association. And the reason why I really love our monthly donors association is because we are building um, education and advocacy um, best practices within our Hope Circle members, because we feel we don't just want your money. We want you to also be advocates in your own community, in your family system. Sexual violence is pervasive. The global statistic is that one in three women are survivors of sexual violence. And I believe that those are only reported. I would actually say it's half, right? Because if we think about the women that we know, at least a third, if not half, are have experienced some form of sexual violence. And the statistic for men is one in six. And for the queer community, it's even higher. Mm -hmm. And so how do we move in our world knowing these statistics? I think it requires better skills building for us as advocates to not only stand with survivors, but to actively fight against sexual violence. And so we build educational opportunities for our Hope Circle members through um, quarterly conversations with our survivor leaders in Kenya and Zambia, and also regular um, content around um, 
uh, blogs, social media work, um, guides as well, curriculum that you can use in your own community uh, to talk about anti-sexual violence work. And so our work for Hope Circle members is that as you're donating in, in kind of a membership platform, as you're donating, your money is also supporting the next generation of survivor leaders in our community. So the holistic education model that I just shared, uh, that's what you're funding essentially. And then we are also building in educational resources for you so that you can also be a better advocate against sexual violence. So that's the best way because you can be giving whatever you want, $25 a month funds um, uh, counseling for one survivor per month. Um, $1,000 a month will fund tuition. So it's really up to you in terms of how you want to structure your giving. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So you were, you were, you were talking about it. Um, what are some key items that the, that you believe that the public should, should know about the work you do and the, and the people that you work with? Are there any key, key things that you believe that, that we should all know? Our organizational ethos and philosophy is that survivors of sexual violence have the potential to become the most powerful liberators in our world. And so again, it goes back to the languaging, how we language, how we understand, how we utilize our language to talk about people who experience trauma, and also how we position them in places of power and authority to make decisions. So first, if we can channel, change our language to know that when we're advocating with survivors as opposed to for, that we're standing alongside of survivors, that we're partnering with survivors, that we're actually listening to the solutions that they have to build a better world, that requires a response where we are changing our organizational structures, our academic structures, our church structures, our family systems, to then center the needs and the solutions of survivors. And so that's where I believe we will have a more equitable liberatory practice in all of our systems globally if we could only center the most marginalized. And Malcolm X said it, the most marginalized person is the black woman. And so if we saw it that way, understanding that the marginalized person does not need to be coddled, nor do they need resources thrown at them. They need power building structures. And so if we could understand that and trust that, then it would require us also as leaders to shift the way that we run all of our institutions. And so I actually think that survivors have such power in their understanding and perspective that can reframe our institutions, our family systems, and our, and our world really in a more liberatory practice that can free all of us, as Angela Davis said. So, where yeah, do, yeah, where do you think that we are as a people, as a group, with our knowledge of sexual violence? You, like in, in the United States or in Yeah, I think in, in the United States is probably a good place to start. Um, you're talking about educating um, communities and then with your um, Hope Circle membership, too, as part of that education process. So, um, yeah, based on your experience. 
Yeah, I feel like, well, United States is very broad, obviously. I think Mm -hmm. there's many different circles where they understand that liberatory practice requires power sharing of resources. Uh, But there's also circles that might still have that more colonizing view of throwing resources at people without actually giving them the support that they need. I think, um, you know, that's evidence in how our political structures have been moving and some of the decisions that have been made uh, recently around what it means to give life to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, we have a lot of work to do. And a lot of that work, again, needs to be centered around the solutions of people with lived experiences. And we don't do that well. Yeah. Yeah, and... And I think that's that's one of the one of the issues of the of the colonizer mind, mindset is that power is is one of those things that we don't want to give up um, or even share. Um, and so, how do we how do we broker that within our within our schools? You know, how do we show it? You know, how 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 can we get to the point where we're where we're providing opportunities of shared power within our K-12 schools. Uh, because then, uh, then we're raising a generation that, that believe that they do have a voice and that it's, it's common that I get to say what I, what I want to say when I want to say it. Um, and, and we could, and we could advocate for, for one another. Um, have you given any any thought about about that, and and are you working on on that within the um, education programs that that you're doing over in um, over in Africa? Yeah, and we're also working with a lot of educational institutions in the United States as well. Sure. Um, so power sharing, you're right, is the most imperative part of decolonization. And so especially for academic institutions, what that could look like is ensuring that the teachers um, are well compensated. They have good benefits in a way that they're able to care for themselves as they care for their families, that they are well protected um, by by the academic institutions. Um, and that there's strong policy, especially as it relates to Title IX um, and anti-sexual violence practices within the school so that both teachers and students are protected if there's any form of violence being perpetuated across a hierarchy. Um, so some of those policies that protect both students and teachers is really imperative. And so when the, when the teachers are well taken care of and they're well trained and they feel protected, uh, protected and they have the resources that, resources that they need to teach well, then inevitably, right, their teaching practice will be a lot stronger, that they'll have the resources that they need to have more expanded educational uh, opportunities for their students. And then their students can learn more nuanced perspective. The students can also see teachers that look like them or have experiences uh, similar to what they've experienced, right? So academia, especially in the United States, well, everywhere really, is is really a hierarchical structure, right? And so I think there's some necessary uh, policies that need to be in place that can help to... um, Well, we need to maintain hierarchy for functionality, of course. 
But how do we have hierarchy that's not oppressive, I think is the question that I have for academic institutions. How do we build power, build resources across hierarchy, even if hierarchy exists? Um, and I think a lot of that comes to fair compensation and benefits and ensuring that that is being provided, especially for low-income low income communities and teachers that come from low-income communities because often they're the best teachers who can speak the language of the community that they're serving. Mm -hmm. I would say a lot of that is the same too for our academic institutions in Kenya and Zambia. Um, they're definitely a lot more under-resourced, um, especially the public school systems. Um, but I will say the teachers that we work with and the teachers that we know from the community are the best of the best. They just need better resourcing. Do you work with local authorities um, in your in your work with education or just uh, reach out or um, outreach, I should say? Uh, and if so, how does how does that happen or what does that look like? In terms of the police, like legal yeah. police structures? Yeah, so we do. Um, we work with lawyers. We work with um, the local police stations for reporting because if you report a, uh, an assault within a 72-hour period, you have to report both to the police and also to the hospital in order to obtain legal justice. Um, so we work with the local authorities to ensure that that process goes smoothly for the survivor and so that they have the documentation that they need should they decide to report. So I know like California is considered a mandated reporter um, state for sexual assault, meaning like if a, um, a survivor goes to the hospital, they will contact the local police department. But does that require them to pursue... Um, further, um, I guess, pursuing of that um, that um, person who attacked them because in some cases uh, a survivor may not want to. Mm -hmm. So um, is that the case in Zambia and in, um, in Kenya as well, or is that not something that has really come up? Um, it's still the will of the survivor. Mm -hmm. However, because the justice system is so broken, even even if the survivor wills it, the justice system will uh, usually put so many roadblocks roadblocks in in place. Mm. Some of our legal cases are actually extending over fifteen years right now. Oh my wow. gosh! Yeah, it's pretty terrible. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, on a lighter side. Um, you have a book out called Liberation is Here. Um, what was your motivation to write the book? And can you share your personal experiences as a writer going through the writing process? Yeah, so I think I started writing Liberation is Here after the 10-year mark of um, running Freely and Hope. And I think that was a really important culminating factor to kind of symbolize all of the learnings and experiences that I've had over the past 10 years and some of the commonalities that I've seen as well in terms of survivor leadership trajectories and best practices in survivor leadership. So I felt it was time. It was time to tell my story as it related to the survivors and my story of leadership transitions and my story of 
um, understanding vicarious trauma and my understanding of um, new perspectives that I learned from survivors in the community. Because I do believe, as we talk about leadership, that if we are going to decolonize international development work, if we're going to decolonize academia, it requires a leadership shift that I went through myself. And so I wanted other leaders to um, potentially learn from my story of what that shift could look like. The process was um, difficult, of course. I think writing a book is never an easy feat, especially when you're um, delving into your own story that sometimes you don't recognize until you actually put pen to paper. Um, but I think um, writing a book is also a very liberating process too, where you're able to articulate um, stories and nuances and connections that you didn't see before. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Do you have uh, an excerpt from your book that you would like to share with us? Um, I could share um, a poem from that if you'd like. Sure. All right. This one is called um, Daughters Are Made of Fire. So my book is both narrative poetry and also visual poetry. So I have some images um, that I took also printed in the book. So it's supposed to be ideally like a whole experiential um, opportunity when you delve into the book. <clears throat> okay, so daughters are made of fire. I would never choose to harm you like others have, for I try to listen and understand, practicing patience and generosity a little more today than yesterday. Try as I might, I fail time and time again. The familiarity of anger and shame are constantly there, biting the back of my throat, attempting to escape. While good intention sits at the pit of my belly, it resurfaces much later when it's too late, when those ungodly words have already escaped and, and ghostly memories return to the present. They haunt me in my sleep. For as my heart's capacity for love might expand, there are remnants of my heart still unformed. Its broken pieces are unable to fill the spaces it occupies. When anger and fear manifest themselves in words that reduce to ash, I forget. I forget that women, mothers, are made of fire, holding the potential to both burn and balm, harm and heal, enclose and illuminate, exhaust and embrace. And it is the same fire that can mold fear into double-edged weapons with intentions to protect, always with intentions to protect against the violence of darkness. This darkness will choose to harm you, like others have, attempting to destroy your light. But try as it might, it will fail, for your light was birthed from this same place where women, daughters, are made of fire. Daughter, your fire holds the potential to either burn or bomb the cracks between your broken heart, to harm or heal the darkened skin across your arms, to enclose or illuminate hopeful visions of your future self, to exhaust or embrace the woman you are becoming. Fists clenched in the cross punch, simultaneously holding close and letting go, I release you into dreams much greater than my own. Wow, that's amazing. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was fascinating because as, as you were reading it, I was 
thinking about just my own journey as a dad with girls um, and just all those all those worries, all those joys, all those highs and lows of just, you know, when the, the first date and just, you know, trying to, you know, trying to harness everything that you are as a dad, um, you know, and it's, but what's interesting, it's the same with a son. Um, it's, it's, it's the same worries. It's the same tribulations. So thank you. That was, that was really beautiful. Um, one of the things that we that we do with 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 all of our guests is we always ask them the very same question at the at, at the very end, um, and we and what that question is: What is your call to action? Um, what is what is the one takeaway you would you would wish for people to to learn from you? Yeah, I think the call to action would be to think about what your response is to that global statistic, knowing that one in three women, one in six men are survivors of sexual violence. Challenge your own internal response for what you will do about that, whether that be volunteering at a local shelter, educating yourself with resources, joining Hope Circle to sponsor and fund the leadership of survivors in our communities at Freely in Hope. Um, be a better friend, parent, auntie, uncle to the young people in your life. I think those could all be calls that each person has, but I think that's up to them to discern how they will seek to end sexual violence in their own families and their own communities. It's beautiful. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing uh, your work and your experiences with us today. I learned a lot and I'm very inspired and I'm going to go get your book and read it. Um, so just wanted to thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me and thanks for the work that you do as well. Mm -hmm.